Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP. Jazzwall Report, ladies and gentlemen, the circus is coming to town. And yes, by that I mean the presidential season is slowly but surely creeping upon us. So far, we have a diverse choice of characters to choose from in every sense of the word, from the loudest voice in the room to those with questionable ethics. We are really spoiled for choice. Or are we? Each one of our candidates brings a certain set of characteristics and values, good and bad, but with all the noise, all the scandals, all the accusations, and all the gossip, the one question remains, how should we vote? Are we going to vote for the candidate with the biggest hype, or should we be voting for someone of a particular type? And to help guide us, I have a very accomplished guest on the show today. He remains among the most decorated officers in American history, with a gold medal for heroism, a gold and silver medal for outstanding service. He served as minister in key U.S. missions abroad. And at age 33, he was named by the president to be the prestigious senior senior executive service as a charter member. He was the youngest career public official to reach this distinction. And among his honors, he's also been knighted by the former king of Italy. He's published many best-selling books, but his new one is worth taking a look at. It's called Future Shock 2.0, and it's an honor to have on the show Professor Emilio Iodize. Welcome to the show, Emilio. Thank you very much, Vip. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, sir, I wanted to get your insight, someone from the outside looking in. Um, you know, with the presidential elections uh, on their way. Is America still a great country? Because its economy, its education, its culture, its international policy seem to be going in different directions. America, in my view, is still the greatest country in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, the very fact that uh, someone like me could be speaking with someone like you uh, and expressing our views uh, is a miracle. Uh, and it's probably not as easy in other countries. Uh, Let's just think about it. Uh, I'm a first-generation American born of immigrants, and yet I was able to work in the highest levels of uh, the U.S. government. No one asked about my name. No one asked about my background or culture, except for when it came to a secret clearance. Mm -hmm. But all they cared about was my ability to serve my country. So if that doesn't make America great, just that one factor, uh, I think uh, nothing else makes us great. But yes, we're a great country, and uh, our greatness is still ahead of us. And I don't think anyone really needs to worry about making us great. We are great now, and we're going to be even greater in the future. But, you know, you, you talk about, essentially you're talking about freedom, right? Exactly. Right. It's freedom, and it's our democracy the strength of our democracy, which, by the way, is looked at in, with envy by the rest of the world. I've traveled, just like you, across this planet. Mm-hmm. We have so many cultures and so many countries that look to us as a guiding light. We are the ones that they, that they take the example of. Uh, just imagine this. Most of our environmental laws have been copied by other countries. We have countries that have copied our Bill of Rights. Mm have looked at our Constitution as their guides, the way we run our country as their guides, our fundamental principles as their guides. Now, for instance, we're involved uh, with the issue of gay rights. 
the laws that we're passing about diversity and gay rights mm-hmm. are being applied in other countries as well as the example, as the key example for the world to follow. So America is certainly great. We're not only people who are running the biggest and the greatest economy in the world. We're also managing the greatest democracy. And it's all about freedom and liberty and holding on to it. And this particular election, more than most, will really determine the future of our democracy for the rest of this century because of the challenges that we face today. It's so, so very important that we select the right people. We're not selecting just a president. We're selecting a government. The president brings into office thousands of political appointees. We want somebody who will have a brain trust and who will also inspire us with his government or her government to move forward in the right direction. Well, I'm so glad that you said, you know, we are selecting a government. And that leads me to my, my, my next question, and, and does our election process need reform? Because should we not be electing the team that's going to work with the candidate? You know, we seem to be focusing on personalities and individuals, but I would like to see who's going to be the brains behind the personality, who's going to run the economy, who's going to do something for the education, who's going to do something for the foreign policy, who's going to do something for the war. I agree with you completely. I think that's one of the flaws in our process, mm. where a, a leader, even though they say, they say that they know who they're going to select uh, for various jobs, right. whenever a candidate is nominated by a party, at that point... The candidates start revealing to us, first of all, the types of people, not necessarily their names, but the types of people they want in the various positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's one thing to search for someone who wants to be Secretary of Defense. Why shouldn't we be searching for the best possible person in America to be the Secretary of Defense? Why shouldn't we go out and ask a captain of industry? to take a cut in salary, but that particular person is the best person for Secretary of the Interior. Come Mm. and join my government, be with us for several years, serve the country, because you're the best possible person to serve the country. That's what what we should be looking for. Why is that not happening? Because it can't take two of us to come up with something as radical as that. It's not happening because immediately uh, the media uh, and, and, of course, so many others begin to look at the individual versus the task at hand. So uh, we start moving into the realm of personalities and we start delving into that person's life, their sacred fortunes, everything about them, even before they've been named to a job. Mm. So. The system uh, is flawed in that regard. So I, if I was a presidential candidate, I would start saying there are a number of different people that I'd be looking at for different roles. Uh, First of all, this is what I want in a, a secretary of state. This is what I'll demand. And if I find these qualifications in a person, that will be at least one of the people that I'll present to the U.S. Senate. Well, the funny thing is, you know, if I was one of the candidates that was losing in, 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 in the polls, 
that's exactly what I would do to sort of boost me back up again. I'd sort of give an imaginary team and what it would look like and things like that. That would be a home run. That, wouldn't that be? And you were talking about tasks at hand. So as we move to select a new president, what are the most important tasks that we should, or he or she should be prepared to tackle? Well, first of all, uh, we're looking at, the, at the, the gigantic issues that are facing the planet that are American issues. We can't do anything alone anymore. We need the help of other countries for most of the issues that affect all of us, that affect our survival. So when it comes to climate change, sure, we'll, we could debate climate change, but the facts are there in my view. It's really an environmental issue, but it's not just our environment. Uh, it's the environment of the world. Or the environment but, Emilio, of the I, but Emilio, I've got to tell you this. You know, when you're choosing the next president, your needs, um, your personal needs, your immediate needs are more relevant than the global ones. I mean, people want jobs. People want a great health care yeah. system. Uh, they want a certain sense of stability. They want, uh, you know, the crime rate to drop, things like that. You know, the immediate issues. All these issues are all tied together, in my view, mm -hmm. whether it comes to the climate, economic stability, which is what we should be striving for across the planet, but first of all, in America, social justice, uh, the whole issue of crime that you just mentioned. We're dealing with the issue of social justice. By the way, I feel that's one of America's great strengths, that we look at these problems, we debate them, we fight about them, because we're striving to be a better country. We're striving to attain social justice. Uh, the issue of pandemics, we think that Ebola is gone. It's not gone. Something else will come up in the future. That, that's the health and safety of the people of our country. All of these things, plus global terrorism and domestic terrorism, are issues that the next president has to confront, and that government with that president has to have a brain trust, has to have the best leaders that understand these problems. So in your wisdom, in your wisdom and experience, give me the top three issues that the next president needs to tackle. First of all, it's economic stability and economic opportunity across the board. Mm -hmm. Just as you said, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. Right. People have to have good, high-paying jobs. That's the first issue. If America isn't strong economically, we will never be able to do anything else. Mm -hmm. We won't be able to build the bridges, the, the dams, and so forth, right. unless we're strong economically. So that's number one. Number two, we have to deal with the foreign policy issues that affect our homeland. Mm -hmm. Those foreign policy issues are, again, global terrorism. And how is it, is it affecting us morally? How is it, is it affecting us as individuals? Number three, we do have to deal with the environment. The environment is spinning out of control in so many areas. That while we're talking, for instance, and I mentioned this in the book, in the Pacific, there's what they call the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. That's growing. It's twice the size of Texas today. Ships have to go around it. They can't go through it because they get everything tangled up. It's a, a mass of plastic. It's a mass of garbage that's growing in continental proportions. It's affecting the wildlife. It's affecting everything. 
The environment is there. China is polluting Los Angeles every day. We're all tied together in this. So the economy, the environment, global terrorism, and the whole issues of social justice, how we deal with it. And that brings in the issue of immigration, for instance. Uh, these issues are all, in my view, tied together. If we don't have a strong economy, we won't be able to deal with everything else. You see, the problem is, in each category, we've sort of weakened in, in, in the global race. I mean, you look at education. Um, I was speaking to a, a guest a few weeks ago. We are number 25 on, on, on the global scale of quality of education. I, I don't know who said this. I, I think it was Einstein who said a nation that pays its plumbers more than its teachers has no future. Uh, and, I, of course, each and every one of us admires plumbers, and they're great professionals. They're important. But our teachers are the ones who shape our minds. We're not spending enough on education. Uh, we're doing it the wrong way. It, it, and I'm an educator, and you're also an educator. But just being on your program where you help us think and talk about issues, this is all part of the educational process. Mm. So. We're not dealing with education in a way that's like the program of NASA. We, we want to put someone on the moon? Well, we should be striving to have the best educated people in the world. We should be striving for that. That should be a national goal. It's one that is absolutely essential. So, so we know what to do. We need the right people in the White House. We know what to do. But okay. what do you think has happened over time where we, we've sort of lost the grip on the fundamental values that have made America greater than what it is today? I think it's expediency. I think it's, uh, uh, it's doing things in the short run mm -hmm. that give us the most bang for the buck politically right now and not worrying about the future. You know the proverbial cliche of kicking the can down the street? Well, look what we've done with our deficit. I think it's $18 trillion, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Well, when are we going to pay that off? How are we going to pay that off? How are we going to deal with something like that? Well, again, it's expediency, and I think it's also the lack of moral courage on the part of our political leadership to also tell us things that are uncomfortable, tell us things that are difficult and require sacrifices on our part. We've lost trust in our leaders. Well, trust. two key words I've picked up from you, moral courage and trust. Let's talk about moral courage. Is being politically correct now becoming a strength or a weakness in presidential politics? Because first of all, I've always wondered why we call it being politically correct and not culturally correct. You know what I mean? Um, oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. And, and, and one thing I must say about Donald Trump, you know, he says it as it is. Um, and he said that we don't have time to be politically correct anymore. He's, he's right that political correctness uh, uh, has a weakness. Mm -hmm. It also has a strength. Uh, when we mean by, by political correctness, when we look at it as not offending any one particular group, and we don't offend that particular group for mm -hmm. a reason, because it takes us away from the real issues. So we don't need to discuss gays, gay marriage. 
We don't need to discuss people because of their nationalities, because of their religion. We shouldn't be focusing on that. No, we shouldn't at all be focusing on those issues. Those are in the realm of political correctness, and they're there for a purpose. They're there to keep us focused on the real problems, the real challenges. Mm. And here's here's the real thing. At times, it's of great value to fight the political correctness of that moment. In the past, we faced this. Uh, we, we faced it as we go through our political history. Let's take the 1930s, for instance, where we had the Great Depression, we were getting ready for World War II. Franklin Roosevelt had to maintain a strong political base in the south of the United States. And yet it was politically incorrect to talk about civil rights, the plight of African Americans, the issue of lynching, that we had lynched 13,000 people by 1938 in the United States. And yet Eleanor Roosevelt knew it was politically incorrect for the government that she was part of to bring forth to the Congress a law to fight lynching, to stop lynching in America, knowing that it wouldn't pass and her husband wouldn't even sign it. But yet she fought for it. Great leaders fight for the right cause, even if it's the wrong time and even if it's politically incorrect. So taking that one step forward, what are the qualities that we should not want in our next president? First of all, we can't afford to have a trainee in the White House. We can't. Well, aren't they all the trainees because no one's been a president before? Well, but it's the kind of job that requires that you hit the ground running, mm. even though there's no job that's comparable to it in the world. But you have to be able to hit that job with um, uh, passion and strength, determination, dedication, and knowledge. You can't go in knowing that the job of president is one that you have to construct all over again for yourself. So we don't want a trainee. What else? We don't want a trainee. We don't want someone who brings in a questionable background. I call it the blackmail factor. Well, that would be Hillary out right there. (laughs) A number of different candidates Mm. could fall into that category because of things that they've done in the past. The blackmail factor is so serious in a job like president. It's serious in so many different fields. But imagine the president of the United States, who has a checkered background, can be blackmailed by our enemies, by their their own political enemies, as well as foreign forces. Mm. And that's terribly serious when we look at uh, some of the examples of the past, some of the presidents of the past that have engaged in things that were impeachable. We understand what we mean by blackmail. I'll give you just a thought. Well, you could be blackmailed by um, the lobbyists and the special interest groups as well, right? Oh, of course, of course, and distort uh, the nation's budget, distort uh, what's uh, what's good for the public. Uh, you could jeopardize lives of thousands of people, millions of people, uh, through the blackmail factor. 
uh, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was president, his son wanted to go to Korea. His son was also in the military. But the president said to him, look, this is not favoritism. If you go and fight in a foreign war and you're captured by the enemy, I will have to resign as president of the United States. That would cause a political crisis. Abraham Lincoln didn't want to put his son Robert in harm's way, not to save his son, but what if his son was captured? But you know, in, in all of this, it's hard to find someone with an impeccable past. It's almost like trying to find a priest in a strip club. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It, 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 um, everyone's got a past. And one thing that is good about America is it does believe in the power of redemption. Oh, yes. As, as a community, as a we, country. And that's what forgive. makes America great. Yes, we do forgive. We, we, and actually, when we have uh, a sinner... Uh, that that comes before us, mm. that admits what they've done. Mm. They take responsibility. Many times that makes them even more important for us. Right. Uh, of course, it depends on the sin. But we we can't expect a saint in the White House. But give me three things that give me three things we don't want. One is obviously trust. What's the second? So uh, we can't have a president in the White House that we don't trust. Okay. Someone, someone that the Congress doesn't trust and the public doesn't trust. That would be a disaster. The reputation of that person has to be one of the word of that president, whether it's a word for a political official, for the public, or for a foreign dignitary. Mm. That word has to be sacrosanct. We really do require trust. We require somebody who is way above us in that regard. I have to give you a, an example, a story. Right. 1945, a sailor who just came from the Pacific fighting four years of war mm -hmm. was standing outside of the White House gates. He was crying like a baby as he watched the coffin of Franklin Roosevelt go by. A reporter came up to him and said, son, did you know the president? And the young man said, sir, I didn't know Roosevelt, but Roosevelt knew me. That's the difference. We need a leader, leaders, mm -hmm. who know us as people, who we are, where we're going, what our needs are. You mentioned it before, jobs. Security. You know, that is so powerful what you just said, because we spend so much time knowing our leaders we don't give them enough time getting them to know us. Exactly. Exactly. Why was Abraham Lincoln so strong as a president, mm. uh, even though he didn't go to Harvard? Why was he so powerful as an intellect, even though he was a, a, a self-educated man? Because he knew the people. He came from the prairie. Mm. He came from rural America. He knew America inside out. He knew the way they thought. He understood even the industry of America that was growing, the Industrial Revolution that was going on. He understood all of this. So when he came to the White House, he brought wisdom, he brought knowledge, and he brought values, moral courage to make the right choice, even, 
even if it might be the wrong time. And uh, the way he handled slavery, the Civil War, social justice. Okay. He flew in the face of of uh, uh, the the thinking, the political thinking, and the political correctness of right. that time. But Emilio, so now two things we don't want: someone we can't trust, someone who doesn't have uh, a, a good reputation. What's the third thing we don't want? Well, we don't want somebody without experience. Uh, we need to bring in somebody, in my view, that has political experience, uh, that understands Washington. Uh, when we uh, talk about, well, we want a Washington outsider, hmm. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, uh, the apparatus there, after I worked there for uh, almost a lifetime, is complex. Uh, and it's it's not just a city that runs the government of the United States. Right. It's a city that's tied to the whole world. So I want somebody who has strong political experience, and I don't want someone who goes in with as the shield that they use and their strength is that I don't know anything about what's going on in Washington and I'm going to reform it. Well, That's almost impossible. Well, based on all the candidates we have, none of them have all three. They might have two out of three, max. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're looking qualities that we're looking for, that they have a good reputation, they have, uh, they have a level of trust, and they have experience. Now, are there any good candidates that you see out there? Forget yes, which so party well. affiliation uh, and things like that. We're talking about general qualities, but specifically leadership, someone who can get us ahead of where we are now as a country. Well, first and foremost, uh, the person that I would want in there, in the job, mm-hmm. would have to be a reformer. A reformer. Okay. Because the system has to be reformed, has right. to be changed. So well, let's look at some of the people that are running right now mm-hmm. and whether or not they understand the weaknesses of the system so much mm-hmm. that they could go in and, and reform it. Okay. Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can say what we want about her. There are pros, there are cons, there are right. so many weaknesses. There are strengths there as well. Yes. She does have the ability, especially if she wins with a large majority, because that's really important. She has to have the political base to make change. She understands the weaknesses of the system. Of course, she's been a product of it. She's benefited from it as well. But sometimes it's those people that have benefited the most, Mm -hmm. that have understood the most about a system that are able to reform it and change it. Uh, Let's take Richard Nixon as an example. He was a, a communist fighter. He uh, built his his whole reputation fighting communism, fighting the left. Well, here's the man who opens up the door to China, to Russia, Mm. changes completely our our policies. So uh, I think Hillary has uh, a number of qualities that could be very helpful. On the Republican side, we have plenty of choices there. Of course, some of those choices are going to be narrowed down in the next few months, but, but... the governors. I respect the governors because governors oftentimes face uh, in a microcosm some of the same issues that we face nationally on a national scale, sometimes even on an international scale. So the governors, we have Governor Christie out there. We have 
uh, Scott Walker, etc. So the governors themselves have a lot of these qualities. Right. They have to be made aware of the fact that the issues that we, the people, want dealt with, the reforms, are their priorities. Here's the issue, in my view. The priorities as to what needs to be done in the future are being set from the top. The priorities need to be set from the bottom. The Give bottom. me an example of what a priority that needs to be set from the bottom. The economy. We're devoting so much attention now to migration and immigration. When we know that the solutions there are much simpler than what we're talking about. But the economy. We should be speaking so much about changing our economy. But we're not. We're not devoting uh, enough time to it. I don't know what the uh, government could have done because, you know what, um, they bailed out banks. They bailed out large companies. The interest rates are low. Um, it's actually the fault of the banks who are not lending anymore or making it very difficult to borrow. Um, and that's not stimulating the economy. It's not stimulating the economy because no one is willing to address the fact that the banks would rather put their money in safe havens, mm. like treasury notes, than lend it out in mortgages. Uh, so uh, there's a basic problem. Again, we're talking about the deficit. Right. Tax reform. We talk about tax reform every election. Every election. When was the last time that you saw your 1040 form change? You don't remember, neither do I. Right. When did we really have tax reform? I guess the only time was during the Reagan years. Uh, that was the time that I remember when we really did have tax reform, and, and taxation was used as an advantage, not as a problem. Mm. We mm. looked upon it as a great advantage to stimulate the economy. Right. Some people look at things as problems. Others look, look at them as solutions. So the economy is one major issue that we're not we're not really focusing our attention on. So let me let me take you back. Half of the debate should be there. Let me take you back to the candidates that we should be looking at. Regarding the economy, um, the obvious choice seems to be Trump. But you're yes. taking a deep breath. Yes, I took a deep breath because uh, um, there, there are certain things that... that uh, uh, make me um, uh, smile about Donald Trump, mm -hmm. like uh, some of the other candidates. Well, don't be selfish. Share, share your thoughts so that we can all smile. <laughs> uh, Trump constantly says, I'm going to create more jobs. Uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Mm. I'm going to reform the tax base. And how? And the difficulty I see with Donald Trump is that he doesn't base many of his statements on facts, on real facts. I don't think he bases his, his um, statements on solutions, on how he's going to do it. That I don't exactly. see. But there's something exactly. about, look, we can't ignore the fact that he's resonating with the people at the grassroots level. There has to be some reason why he's so popular. He well, seems to be the only something. one, and it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning about... Um, that, that, that soldier at, at the White House, um, that the president knew him. It seems yes. Trump seems to know what is frustrating people. I don't know if, he's frust if he understands what's frustrating all of us. Mm -hmm. He might understand some of us. 
Uh, well, the polls don't lie. We have to go by the polls. The polls, uh, I, I know. We have to look at the polls, mm. and the polls are also facts. Uh, and, and yes, he does resonate with a large group of Republicans. He may even become the, the Republican nominee. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's the best candidate. Uh, but he could become the standard bearer for the party. But what kind of a program would he be fighting for? Look, based on the three values you gave me, in terms of what we don't want someone who lacks trust, who doesn't have a good reputation and who doesn't have experience. And I said to you that you're not going to get all three. But in his case, um, he's never been declared untrustworthy. He has seems to have a reasonable reputation in the business world. Um, and he was accused of going bankrupt, I think, at the debate. And he was very outright and said, well, the system allows me to go bankrupt. And it wasn't him who went bankrupt. It was his companies that went bankrupt. The only thing that he lacks is political experience. I'm not well, saying that I'm in favor of Trump. There are listeners out there who will yeah. be in favor of Trump, and they want to use our logic and our rationale. Yes. He does have experience. He has business experience. He has business he has experience. experience as an executive. That's very important mm. in, in the White House. Somebody who makes decisions, he has to make decisions all the time. Right. So I give him great credit for that. Mm-hmm. Now, when we come back to the trust factor, uh, I think we're probably only at the tip of the iceberg in understanding what's happened in his past uh, that may or may not create questions in our mind about his trust. Those things will probably come out more in this campaign. Uh, and I think we have to understand more. We mm-hmm. have to know more about some of the things that he's dealt with in the past that for us could be examples of untrustworthiness. We have to know them. This is the job of the media. And, and please forgive me if I say this, because uh, this may be somewhat controversial. Of course, you're, you're a person of the media. But the media lives on advertising. It lives on uh, the uh, ability to get listeners, get people uh, uh, to focus on an issue, focus on a voice, focus on a theme. Trump does that. Uh, Trump is good at that. Remember we had, uh, in American history, yellow journalism, what we called sensationalism. Mm. Well, those are the things that sell soap. They sell automobiles. Let's face it. But at the end of the day, you know, people always say that, that it's the media's fault, this and that. What I want to say is, you know, I've... um, it's, It's more about finding what resonates with people and giving them more of that. If something resonates... You're going to give more of that. You know, when, 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 as we get closer to the elections, we're going to give more focus on the election and the candidates rather than maybe a robbery that happened in Tibet. Absolutely. And, and I'm not criticizing the mm. media. That's the job of the media. Right. But we, as individuals, have to understand the context from which the media operates in. We have to understand that as well. What are the pressures that also draw the media to bring out one message versus another. Mm. But it's important that we listen to Donald Trump. We listen to people like him. And just as you said, uh, themes come out in a campaign Mm. and ways of expressing things come out in the campaign sometimes as never before. The Lincoln 
Douglas debates. Abraham Lincoln debated for the first time his opponent. People had never seen this before. They'd never heard it before in the days when there were no microphones. Mm. But the debates were in all the newspapers. People who couldn't read or write, they recited the words that came out of those debates across the country. Mm-hmm. So the media, the medium, helped bring this out. And sometimes the medium is the message itself. Okay. Uh, you know, I look at Donald Trump, and sometimes I say, well, you know, the medium itself, he may be the message. Maybe he, he is the message. Uh, he well, is a forceful character. That's the message. Yeah, he's a no-nonsense guy. He's a no-nonsense guy. Um, and I want to get to your book. But before that, within the Republican candidates, who are your top two favorites so that I don't isolate you and make you choose one? Who are the top two Well, that you like? I happen to like Jeb Bush uh, as far as the Republicans go because I want somebody who's going to be reflective in the White House. Uh, Trump says he has a low energy level. I don't think so. Mm. Been governor of Florida, successful governor of Florida, you have to have a high energy level. So I think he's demonstrated that in the past. Okay. Uh, I happen to like him, uh, and I and I think he has uh, uh, a strong character, uh, and he does have principles, and he is uh, also conservative. Number two. I happen to like. I'm sorry. Go on. Number two. Who do you like? Carly Fiorina. Uh, I uh, spent years working in industry, and uh, I've met her, and, and I've, I've gotten to know her. She's a very broad-minded industrialist. She's a person who's traveled around the world, mm-hmm. learned a great deal, has a great sense of purpose and dedication, loves America, uh, and I think uh, would be a fit for the job. Maybe not number one, but perhaps number two, but certainly an important person for our government, even though she may not become president of the United States, she should be the secretary of a major agency. So I would like to see her as well uh, continue in this race and in this debate. Hmm. And on the Democrat side, the top two preferences? Well, for me, of course, it's uh, Hillary Clinton uh, is the top. Hmm. Uh, I also like uh, Governor O'Malley uh, to to some extent. Uh, Again, I'm partial to governors because I, I think uh, we need to bring that kind of leadership, the executive leadership, the complex executive leadership, mm-hmm. into the White House. We've had that in the past. Some of our most successful presidents have been governors, Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, these uh, were uh, uh, people who were prepared for the job, and that's what I'm talking about. We're talking about preparation for the job, and it's not only a matter of getting there. It's being ready for it. All that leads me to Future Shock 2.0. Now, you've had some bestsellers before. Tell us, I mean, what, what is Future Shock 2.0? What's the book about? The book is uh, it's a, a series of stories. Mm-hmm. It's about the future. Mm-hmm. It's about what's up ahead, the shape of things to come. The book is a wake-up call to all of us that looks at where we're going over the next five years. And uh, it's done in the form of stories Stories, that are real-life stories about human drama and about what's happening in this planet of ours. And if we don't have the right leadership, uh, we're we're facing a cataclysm. 
So are you considering yourself some sort of a Nostradamus? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure that I'm as smart as Nostradamus was, mm. uh, if there was a Nostradamus. Uh, but I based my conclusions on facts. Uh, and, and when you do that, it's so easy. If you just look at the way things are going now, mm. well, many times you can predict what's up ahead. I started writing this book a number of years ago, and then when I finally published it, I realized that as the book went forward, month by month, many of the things that I had predicted were happening. Give me some examples, because right I'm dying to ask you that. Well, the, the situation in China, uh, which I discuss in the book, and China is very, very important for us, and it's important for the next administration. Hmm. The Chinese make everything for us. Our factories are there. Our workers are there. Today. Well, they buy our bonds as well. And, and they do. And they even finance our deficit. Right. So we're truly dependent on China. What happens in China happens to us. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese, every year, every day, every month, have civil strife in their, in their country. They do. And this is uh, documented, and most of it is undocumented. But they have that going on constantly, and it's based on the environment, economic activity, uh, uh, social injustice, and uh, so many different rights that don't exist under a dictatorship. Well, the Chinese economy is beginning to take a very, very serious downturn, and I predicted it in my book that it would happen now, that it would start now, and it will affect us as well. It will. Their ability to produce for us the things that we want when we need them. Well, their ability to finance our deficit. Absolutely. They're not going to be able... That's what scares me about them. Trump, because he's so anti-China. They might just turn around and say, we're going to stop lending you money. We can't be anti-China. We have to convince the Chinese that there may be a better way for them to run their economy and society... Mm through democracy, so that they can deal with their problems up ahead and let their people, one and a half billion of them, fend for themselves by making decisions for themselves that might be better for them in the far distant future. Well, in but your we book... just can't fight with China. We can't. In your book, you also predicted the growth of ISIS. Absolutely. I mentioned that. Again, I started writing the book several years ago. ISIS will continue to grow. It will. It's, it's a reflection on the situation in the Middle East, uh, uh, the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. Uh, and yet we're letting it spin out of control. So are you, saying, are, you saying, are you saying that no matter what the presidential candidates say, that they will fix it or stop ISIS or whatever, that's not going to happen? It's not going to happen without solutions, without clear solutions that involve other countries as well. We have to convince other countries that they're the stakeholders in an issue like ISIS, mm -hmm. that they have as much to risk as we do, even though we're thousands of miles away. But we have to bring them into this. Uh, we're not doing this with the Europeans. We're not convincing other countries that this is a very, very serious issue. This is not being debated in the United Nations now. We're not talking about this. So we need to come to grips with it. It's not going to heal itself. This will not heal itself. 
Hmm. So is your book a very pessimistic point of view? Actually, it's a book based on optimism because uh, uh, at the end of the book, I pose solutions to problems. Uh, the problems that we face, the great challenges mm-hmm. that we face, are all based on leadership. Well, you we said have the right leaders in place; they'll be able to deal with it. And we know how to, how to deal with these problems. We know the solutions. We're not in the dark Vic, about solutions. We know what the solutions are. It's the courage to go out and to deal with them and to apply them. Well, in your book, you you believe that China is going to undergo a revolution. Is is that good or bad for us? That would be a disaster for us, a disaster for us and most of mankind. Imagine if 10% of the population of China revolts. Mm. That's 150 million people. The largest army in the world couldn't stop that. And even the 5 million man army of China couldn't stop that. Those people not only would destroy and disrupt their economy, their society, Hmm. but millions of them would leave to find shelter in other countries, including the United States, including Europe, millions of them. The mass migration that I talk about in the book is a consequence of so many factors, and this will be one of them if we don't deal with it in the future. We could have a revolution in China. Others have written about this as well, that are even more knowledgeable about China than I am. But it will happen if we continue on the farm, on the course that we're going today. So if, if Trump comes into power, we're going to need a wall on land and a wall on water. You might have an immigration or refugee crisis. Absolutely. Well, we will have a refugee crisis uh, uh, in the not-too-distant future if we continue this way. Uh, and I'm not sure that, that walls will be enough. Uh, those barriers may not be enough. Uh, We'll have to find other solutions to this kind of problem. The best solution is to prevent it from happening right now, is to stop it from happening, and to understand that the problems there are also created by us. We shifted our environmental issues to China. Mm -hmm. We shifted our production to China. We shifted our manpower, in effect, to China. Well, okay, now we have a responsibility. We've got to do something about it. They're not alone. They can't be alone in all of this. Wow, that's deep. Um, What's the good prediction that you have from the book? The good prediction is that uh, America will rise to the occasion because of our people. Mm -hmm. We will rise above all of these challenges in the future because of our democracy, which I, I'm confident that our leaders in the future will strengthen instead of weaken, and that the diversity of our people, the diversity of our people, will be our strength, uh, our welcoming of so many different types of people and so many different religions and ways of thinking. That will continue to be our strength. We need to cultivate that, not look upon it as a problem, but look upon it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, we'll be able to deal with any crisis in the future. We will. Professor Emilio Iodize, we've almost come to the end of the show. Where can we get this book? Future this book Shock 2.0. Book, 
this book, yeah. like all of my books, are on Amazon.com under my name, I-O-D-I-C-E. And uh, I should mention that all the proceeds go to charity. But more importantly, these books are about ideas. And Future Shock 2.0 really is about uh, what's up ahead for us and uh, the shape of things to come. And I really do hope uh, uh, people will, will look at it. I want to thank you, Vic, for, for giving me this opportunity to talk about some of the things that are happening to us today and, and where we're going. Emilio, you were shockingly brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your followers are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jazzwell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jazzwell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones, and until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.